Good morning again, everybody. Would you pray with me, please, before we go into the Word? Father, we are grateful for the truth of God's Word that is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. And uh, it provides the answers that we need for living this life and helps us to anticipate uh, what life in the future will be like with you. You're mar- you're our, you are marvelous in, in your ways, God. You are beyond description and matchless in all that you do. Uh, bless us as we study and prepare us for the journey that is this week to come. And should you tarry, may we be found to bring glory and honor to your name each and every step of the way. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I recently was having a conversation with my sister, Laura, and as part of the conversation, we were both commenting on the fact that we both miss our service, or we both missed our, our sister, Kimberly. Um, I'm the eldest of four. Uh, Kimberly was the second born, and she was uh, a very special young lady as she was born with some physical mental handicaps. She had spina bifida and never walked a day in her life, spent her whole life in a wheelchair and had some other uh, challenges that went along with that emotionally and, and mentally and passed away into the arms of Jesus at the age of 39. And uh, I miss her. She was a sports junkie. Everything about her was Pittsburgh. Unfortunately, uh, I couldn't reform her before it was too late. <laughs> I miss her hugs. Uh, my sister Laura calls them the grip. When Kimberly would wrap her arms around your neck, you had a hard time getting away. Uh, she didn't have the best uh, hand dexterity, but if she got her fingers locked, it was just the clench, and you, you couldn't get away, and she just loved to hold on to you. She loved to laugh, and uh, I think partly because of her emotional makeup, sometimes certain things of of a slapstick background would trigger a laugh in her. And uh, she had a tremendous belly laugh. And it would get going and going and going. And and we would just all be in gales of laughter. But then something would happen in Kimberly. Something would trigger in her mind. And that joyful laugh would give way to tears. And they would start as tears of joy. And as, as it continued, she would become terribly sad and really couldn't ever articulate why she was sad. And then you would have to work to get her calmed down and and not crack any more jokes for a while and just uh, let her recover. And there was really no explanation for it other than the fact that it must have been something about her being very unique as one of God's daughters. I'm glad she knew Jesus as her Savior. As I thought about that, and I thought about some of the other things that are a part of living life on this planet, um, I got to thinking about tears a little bit. And uh, I know that some of you get to laughing so hard that you cry as well. But I don't know if it is uh, moves from such a wide extreme of being overjoyed to be in, being in the depths of sorrow uh, like my sister. But I asked myself a couple questions as I began to ponder this. Who cries? Well, a lot of people cry. Uh, maybe you don't. You're way too tough for that. And uh, I'll just let God have you. Um, But then I started asking, why do people cry? And and one of the interesting things about going on a journey through Scripture to address this question was that 
as I did a word search in the King James, just real quick, I began to see some things. Like the word tears is used 35 times, then the word weep or weeping is used 85 times. And as you begin to go through a study and just see who are the people in Scripture or what are the situations where uh, people would do this, you find that it really doesn't tell you anything new. It confirms what you already know about your own life. But as I looked at the information, I've I've kind of put them into six broad categories this morning just uh, for us to think about. Why do people cry? Why do they grieve? Why do they sorrow? Well, the first one is pretty obvious, and that is we cry or we mourn when someone we love or care about dies. And that's that's just not a surprise at all. Isn't that correct? And we we talk about that occasionally around here as we say goodbye to some but uh, we just buried roger a little while ago a little over a week ago and so that's fresh on our mind but when you look at scripture uh, you see abraham grieving over sarah and you see isaac grieving over his mom israel grieved for 30 days when moses died before they moved on and went into the land of canaan Um, you see something else that's interesting about this grief you see grief over the potentiality of death. When you look at King Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 5, Hezekiah breaks down and he weeps at the thought of dying in the prime of his life. In other words, he anticipates what's going to happen and that breaks his heart. We see Mary and Martha weeping over their brother Lazarus. We see men in Acts 2 making loud lamentation over the death of Stephen. So we see lots of examples of this in Scripture. Now, I met someone once, and you know this person, many of you do, who did not cry anymore at the death of loved ones. This was very interesting to me. Geneva Schobert said that she did not cry when her son Elwood died. She she said, I have cried so much earlier in my life that I just don't cry anymore when somebody in my family dies. I, I'm i sad and I, I grieve and I miss him, but she did not cry. I thought that was interesting. When she was dying, Jen and I went to visit her in the hospital. And I remember being in the hospital room with her and talking to her and, and she was talking about going and that she knew what God was doing. And as we talked, I just... I could not stand it anymore. I could not stand the pressure. And I I began to weep and cry. And I just looked at her and I said, Geneva, you are breaking my heart. And she said, it's okay, Pastor. It's okay. And she said, it's okay. And I came to realize that it is okay. And here's why. Um, Because when it comes to death, Believers don't grieve the same way. And it was her gentle way of reminding us about that process. If you have your Bible, I want to show something to you. uh, Where these two things meet, where grief and grace meet. In Luke chapter 7, you see the combination of grief and grace. And it's a great miracle that Jesus does. And we'll use this. As, as one of the passages to this point about just recognizing the fact that it's, it's a part of, of everyday normal life to grieve when somebody that you love is no longer there. In Luke 7, verse 11, Jesus and his disciples come to this little town called 
Nain, N-A-I-N. And verse 12, as they approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. A sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. And he said to her, do not weep. So we know that she is weeping uh, greatly at the loss of her son. And, and the Lord says, do not weep. And here, verse 14, it says, he comes up and he touches the coffin and, and the pallbearers come to a halt and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up and began to speak. And the result is that fear grips them all in verse 16. And they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Here, we see that Jesus interrupts death. She's crying her eyes out at her loss. She's a widow, and she's already experienced the deep and raw cutting pain of loss already with the death of her husband, and now her son has died. This was the one who would have, who would have cared for her and been her protector and her provider, and now she was all alone. But God comes into her life. Grief meets grace, and he raises her son back to life. They glorify God and they say a great prophet has arisen. This would be in the mold of Elijah and Elisha, two prophets in Israel's history who raised others from the dead as well. It was a sign to Israel that the prophet like unto Moses was on the scene. It was a sign they were to believe in him. In this story, as Jesus ministers to the person who is in great grief, there is mercy because he holds back ongoing grief and there is grace to her in that he gives her her son. As I pondered this, I realized that this is the same theology that comes to us in 1 Thessalonians 4 when Paul says, when you have someone who is in the Lord Jesus Christ and they leave and they die, we grieve not like those other people who have no hope. Our grief is different. Why? Because we know based on the hope of the gospel, we have the hope of the resurrection and that it is not a goodbye forever for those that we have loved in Jesus Christ. Well, We all know that we have grief when somebody dies. There's a second thing that I discovered in this little survey, and that is we cry in our suffering, or we cry when we're faced with personal danger or fear, or when we just miss somebody. Job 16.20 says, My eye weeps to God, and he is suffering in that verse. David says in Psalm 6, 6 and 7, I am weary with my sighing. You may recall, and perhaps it'd be good to look, at 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. David and his men, they are returning to their camp. When they get back to their camp, they find out in chapter 30, verse 1, that the Amalekites had made a raid on their city and they had overthrown the city Ziklag and burned it with fire. And the Amalekites had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone. And they carried them off and they went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. This is an example of weeping and grieving when you're faced with great personal danger or fear or overwhelming disappointment. 
In Ecclesiastes 4.1, it talks about having the tears of the oppressed, uh, people who may be mistreated or being enslaved. In the book of Esther, verse eight or chapter 8, verse 3, we see Esther, who is in, involved in anguished pleading and tears for the lives of her people. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 4, we see Paul acknowledging the fact that Timothy had been crying uh, for Paul, perhaps maybe because he missed him, because they were separated, or maybe because of the rigors of ministry, and he just wanted to be able to talk to Paul and get some encouragement, and he couldn't. In other words, what we learn from Scripture is that Scripture tells us that all of the people that we find in the Bible are just like us. They would cry when they fell, when they got hurt, when they smashed their finger, when they stubbed their toe, when they experienced shock. They would cry when they had their relatives in combat or in harm's way or had relatives who lived in unsafe domestic situations. They would cry if they heard shocking health news. They would release their emotions after a dangerous situation had passed. In other words, as we look through the Scriptures, we find that the people of the book are just like us. There's a third grouping. People cry when they identify with the suffering and the heartache that is experienced by others, like Jeremiah did over the suffering of Judah because of their sin. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Just listen to his words in Lamentations 2.11. It says, My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people with little ones and infants fainting in the streets of the city. As he looks at the judgment of God being poured out on Judah, he can't help but sigh and cry over all of the massive heartache that is taking place among God's people because of their sin. David said this about his grief in Psalm 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. I saw that phrase, and can you hear it? It He says, it has become old. In other words, David says, I am sick and tired of crying. You ever feel that way? David did. Jeremiah did as well. Uh, We're reminded of this principle in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, where as people of Christ, we're told to weep with those who weep as well as rejoice with those who rejoice. So you grieve when things go bad. You grieve when you see people suffering because of the heartache of sin like Jeremiah. There's something else that we need to see, and I direct your attention to the book of Acts chapter 20. One of the fourth categories that I found in the Scriptures about why people would experience intense sadness. Sometimes people cry in the context of ministry because there is the pleading and the expending of emotion while seeking to direct people to Christ. Notice what he says. He's he's talking to the Ephesian elders. They have met together and uh, in verse 20, verse 17, or chapter 20, verse 17, if you would look there, we'll grab the context. Paul says, 
or Luke says, rather, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. So one of the things that brought Paul to tears on a regular basis is just the spiritual opposition that he felt as he was trying to minister the gospel to other people. Not only was there the pressure from from those who didn't love Jesus Christ, but there was also the care toward those who did. Notice with me, please, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And notice how he ministered. He says, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Uh, For those who would be able to study the the scriptures, and come away with an understanding of Paul that he was just really cut and dried and just right and wrong with no sense of compassion and no care for the people that he ministered to would be a totally uh, wrong uh, view of who Paul was. Paul was intimately involved in these people and he says, "I I have admonished you and I have taught you and I have cried with you for three years. He told this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So as you go through the New Testament, or actually you go through the Scriptures, that's kind of another grouping of of what you find in the passages as you look at uh, what might cause people to to tear up, what might cause them to grief, and that is the intensity of caring about people and ministering to them. Now, one of the interesting things about this study is that there are some some good tears in the Scripture. Some of the best tears that could ever be shed are found in Luke chapter 7. Why don't you turn there with me? Some of the best tears that could ever be shed are called the tears of repentance. And in this particular passage, what we see is we see a woman who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, is demonstrating her love and belief in him and her repentance. And you know the story, I'm sure, but take a look at verse 37 with me. Luke seven thirty-seven. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Look down at verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And one of the one of the sweetest pictures in the scriptures is the tears of repentance that are found in this story when a person turns away from their sin and comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I just think about different times in life having the opportunity to share the gospel with people and uh, and and seeing them respond in this way. Uh, one time went out in the, in the summer and was doing some community survey work in a trailer park and came to this trailer and this, this gentleman answered the door when I knocked on the door and he was a rather big guy, gruff, and uh, really didn't want me there. We talked a little bit, and I asked one key question. I said, would it be okay if we came back and visited you? And he said, yes. And so one night, several months later, actually, two other people and myself went back to that trailer and we went in and we met this couple named Rick and Brenda. And uh, as he looked back on the story, he he was rather abrupt with me because he thought it was the Mormons coming by again and they had just had it right up to the eyebrows with that. But as we began to talk, we, we began to share the gospel together. And a long story short, as they began to unfold their side of the story, as we thought about coming to them with the good news, they began to tell us their story of how they would lie in their bed at night and they would cry out to God because they had the Mormons coming and they had the Jehovah's Witness coming and they would be reading their Bible and nothing seemed to make sense and they would just cry out to God and say, God, would you send us somebody? Would you help us figure out what's true? Because they were just coming to the end of their their rope and that night as we, we shared with them, we were there for quite a while and as a result of that, Rick and Brenda prayed and asked Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And that night, around the table in their trailer, there wasn't tears of fear, but there was tears of joy. There was tears of repentance at knowing that Jesus Christ had come into their life and forgiven them of their sins and, and given them the gift of eternal life. Those are good tears when, when people find the hope that they're looking for. And sometimes the Scripture tells us it's not... Um, just for salvation, but there are times when we shed tears for our own sanctification, when we're, we know Jesus as our Savior, but, but there are times where God comes into our life and for whatever reason or in whatever way He chooses, breaks our heart so that we see Him more clearly and we, we repent and we grow. And we find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where it says, the, there is a sorrow that is according to the will of God that produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So one of the things about a quick journey through the Scripture is that you realize that everybody is the same. Everybody who's ever lived on the planet has experienced the same kinds of things. And if you take those verses and begin to look at them clearly, you begin to group them into different ways and you see that they go together. But as you do that, there's one thing that has to be seen and acknowledged. And here's what we know about from the Scriptures. Weeping and tears are the result of man's fall into sin 
and the curse that followed. God told Adam in Genesis chapter 2 about what was expected of him when he was living in the garden. And he said, this is what I want you to do, and, and there's one thing I don't want you to do. If you do that one thing, there will be death. Death will follow. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And we know how that story unfolded because in chapter 3, that's exactly what they did. And as a result of that sin, their relationship with God was fractured and their sin separated from them from God. And as a result of that sin, the consequence of that was immediate guilt and immediate fear and immediate shame. And they ran and they tried to hide from God and they made clothing of, of fig leaves and all of those things came Part of what came as a result of the fall and the curse, though, is found in chapter 3, where God tells uh, the serpent that there is going to be enmity between his seed and Eve's seed. There's going to be war, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be strife. And then he looks at Eve and he says, Eve, you are going to have tremendous pain in childbirth. We don't want to talk about that pain too much. But what we do want to recognize is the fact that as you work through scriptures, you realize that it was Adam and Eve's sin and the fall that brought weeping and grief and sorrow into this world. That's where it comes from. And as a result of that, God put a curse upon the rest of creation because it would not be right for a sinful fallen man to live in a pristine and pure world. All of creation was placed under curse so that when you read in Romans 8, 22 and 23, you learn that even now as we meet together, our planet is groaning and grieving over the tremendous uh, grief that it feels and endures because it is under the curse of God. And verse 23 says that we, even as believers, groan within ourselves. When we read the verse in John eleven thirty five that says Jesus wept, you need to get rid of that idea that Jesus was just this, this soft spoken weepy guy that owned stock in Kleenex. Because the idea of Jesus weeping is that he is groaning inside. He it is a uh, a deep, inner, overwhelming sense of grief and sadness that does come out in a cry, but it is over the tremendous cost and destruction that sin has brought into the lives of people. And even when we see him in the Gospels, we see him weeping over Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to bring you under my wings like a a mother hen takes care of her chicks, but you would not. When you see Jesus reaching out with compassion toward people, it's not just so he can make life on this earth better for them. It's because he sees the overwhelming grief and sorrow that life on this sin-cursed planet is all about. And he brings grace into it. Ultimately, the greatest weeping I want you to know about, though, will be the lost. The greatest weeping that there will ever be will be the lost in eternity. 
Matthew chapter 25, as Jesus tells the story of the stewards, one steward gets seven talents, one gets three, and one gets one. The one that gets one talent does not invest it with the Lord. He tries to steal it and use it for himself. And it is an example in the scripture of one who does not know Christ and does not honor him with their life. And at the end of that story, Jesus says, throw them into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You need to understand that one of the pictures of lost people in all eternity is going to be one of utter anguish and continual sorrow and weeping. When the great white throne judgment takes place in Revelation chapter 20, those who don't know Christ as Savior and go out into a Christless eternity, one of the things that will mark them will be being locked into a condition where there is only ever eternal anguish and eternal anger and eternal regret. They are cast into outer darkness, listen, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So one of the things that comes out of this study is the end result of going through life on this planet is not only can there be some very, very intense times of sorrow and sadness, but if nothing ever comes along in a person's life to change that, eternity is so much worse. That's why it's so important to tell people about Jesus Christ, to tell them about forgiveness and hope and to talk about the cross and the gospel and the resurrection and the hope of forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. But for those of you that are here this morning under the sound of my voice, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is there any hope in the middle of this harsh reality? If you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, this is what I want you to know. God can use your tears. God can use your tears. And here's the first way. You need to allow your tears to focus your heart back to a sovereign, faithful God. You need to allow your tears to focus your heart back to a sovereign, faithful God. The text tells us in First Samuel 30, verse 6, the second half of the verse, that things got so bad for David and his men, not only were they grieving and weeping about the fact that all of their wives and children had been kidnapped and all of their possessions had been stolen, but even among David's men, they began to murmur and they were thinking about stoning him and killing him. And this is what the text says in the midst of all that. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Please join me on a small journey through Psalms. Turn to Psalm 42, please. Over and over you'll find throughout the Psalms, David and other writers taking us back to God. He says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? For my tears have been my food day and night. And while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. 
Verse 5, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Verse 11, it says, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Turn over to another familiar and favorite. Turn over to Psalm 46 and see what David says, or excuse me, the sons of Korah say here. Verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. The psalm ends in verses 10 and 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Job said this, verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him or I will trust in him. You could go on to other chapters. Psalm 91 is another familiar verse, another uh, very, uh, I think, familiar portion of God's word for those that are struggling and perhaps full of grief. The first two verses say, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Uh, we could go on and, and do so much more, but one of the things that I would encourage you to do this morning is to consider what it might be that you're facing in your life, whether it be the, the coming loss of a job, or the coming loss of a loved one, or something, maybe a loss that you've already experienced and to look hard at your life and to ask yourself this question, am I running hard to the rock of ages or am I running away? Because one of the things that the writer of the Psalms shows us is that God is there. And it is through our tears oftentimes that God will help us to focus our heart back on Him as a sovereign and faithful God. David reminds us that God is attentive to every detail. That's why he says so so strongly in, in Psalm 56, 8, that all of David's tears were kept in a bottle. And you know, I know sometimes that uh, there is a, a sense in which maybe we, we miss some of the blessings of, of some of the music that we sing because we're so familiar. This is an old one. But I want you to listen to the words of this dear person because it is based on one of the scriptures that we read. But listen to the theology that comes out of this person and you know that they have walked the journey of tears. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul. Thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. 
and be still my soul. The waves and winds still know His voice who ruled them while He dwelt below. There's a third verse, but you can you can hear the heartbeat of, of that person as they take scriptural truths and put it to a, a meter and a rhyme. Is the theology that they believe in being put down on the page that carries them. One of the things that you and I can do as people who live in a in a world that hurts on a sin-cursed planet who await the day when Jesus will make things right is to remember that our tears can help focus our heart back to a sovereign, faithful God. Here's the second thing. Please join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the second way that God can use your tears today. Whatever you're going through, it focuses our heart back to a sovereign God. Secondly, it may be hard to see through the tears, but God comforts and expands our capacity for ministry to other people. Might not always be easy to see, but God comforts and can expand our capacity for ministry to other people. He says in verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now Paul goes on here to talk about this and develop it more, but I think the initial verses are what we want to focus on this morning. It's not always to see, and sometimes it might not happen right away. It might be down the road a bit. But I want you to understand, God doesn't waste our tears. Only a wise, merciful Father can help us live life on a broken planet and take pain and redeem it for His glory and our benefit. Only a wise Father can do that. Only a wise Father can take us in our brokenness and make us channels of His grace and mercy and comfort to other people. It may be that God wants to expand our capacity and compassion for lost people. In Matthew 9, Jesus looked at the people and his heart was broken because he said they were dispirited as sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes the Lord can use our experiences so that we connect with other people who have no hope and it allows us the platform to be able to minister the gospel to them. You don't always know how God is going to use an experience in your life. You don't always know in what way he will open that door. But we do have this truth. We do have this promise that God does not waste experiences on us. He does not waste our tears. God is able to comfort us and often expand our capacity for ministry to others. And there's a third thing that I want you to remember today. And that is this. Someday, all believers will have dry eyes. Seems like every so often during the year, I have to use a bottle of eye drops because my eyes either get really itchy with allergies or maybe they get dry. I haven't figured it out yet, but um, it, they tend to be red a lot. But but sometimes that uh, 
those those bottle of eye drops really work wonders, and maybe you have that too, especially if you're a contact user. You may be using uh, drops on a regular basis to bring comfort to your eyes. But I want you to know one of the greatest promises that is found in the Scripture is for those of us that love Jesus Christ have the hope that someday we're going to have dry eyes, and we're not talking about irritated, itching eyes. We're talking about looking forward to the time when there'll be no more tears. Jesus told the faithful stewards in Matthew 25, he said, enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. And in that passage, joy is contrasted with weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, joy is relief. Joy is fullness. Joy is overwhelming in its deliverance from all suffering. The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah told the people, is our strength. And if you look at Revelation chapter 21, one of the things that undergirds us for our life today and for the days to come as we say goodbye to people that we love, as we have family transitions, as we watch sometimes uh, people come and, and go, as we see our children make decisions that leave us wondering when we'll see them the next time, or as we have different transitions in life, whatever they may be, look at what John tells us about how things are going to shake out and end. Chapter 21 of Revelation says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, any crying, or any pain. The first things have passed away. To be in eternity with Jesus is to have joy inexpressible and full of glory. You cannot dwell in the presence of a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, and a sovereign King of the universe and have anything come out of your heart but overwhelming joy and gratitude for His eternal grace. Sadness and sorrow and tears will have no presence in the brilliance of His glory and it will be His sustaining grace that allows us to be there the entire time. And so even though He made us with the capacity to have running water in our eyelids. They won't function in eternity. He will dry the eyes. There will be no more tears. Until then, we remember that God can use us. He can use us as we depend on Him. He can use us as He comforts us. And He can use us as we run hard to Him. This morning... Don't allow your tears to define you. Don't allow your tears to control you. Don't allow your tears to cause you to give up. But rather, take this opportunity to be driven back to Christ, the one who was called the man of sorrows and well acquainted with our grief, and to realize that 
by following and living for the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have uh, reminded us again that you are good all the time and even in things that look so desperate sometimes, so full of pain. There's so many life experiences that we find even in Scripture. You help individuals and you've helped the church to uh, triumph through those. And so I think about our own church family. Give us all a really big view of Jesus Christ and His sufficiency. For you are a wonderful Savior. And we just want to praise you and thank you for these things now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.